So hopefully we're all familiar, at least with the concept, if you don't remember all of them offhand, at least you're, you recall the concept of the ten plagues when Israel was leaving Egypt or wanted to leave Egypt and Pharaoh did not let them go. God punished Pharaoh uh, with ten plagues until finally after the tenth plague, Pharaoh finally let the people leave. So you wonder, why did God punish the Egyptians and Pharaoh with these ten plagues? Why these ten? Why ten? Why these ten? They're when, as you go through them, we'll go through them in a moment, they are uh, very creative, very unique, each one. Um, some of them are maybe more what you would think of as plague. Some are less common what you would think of as plague. But these are not, but they're not, so a lot of them are not common. Why did God choose these ten plagues? So commentaries say that there is great significance within in these ten plagues. There's great meaning to them. The Midrash explains that these ten plagues was God waging war against the Egyptians. Normally you would wage war with armies. God doesn't need an army. He has his own way of doing it because he controls nature and can break nature, the rules of nature, when he chooses to. And so therefore God can use the same war tactics that you would normally use For war, God can do it without an army. But it's all war tactics. That's what the Midrash says. As the Midrash goes through the various plagues and shows each one how God is using them to overcome, to defeat the Egyptians. And he says the first thing you do, the Midrash says, when you attack a place is you block its water sources. So God turns the water into blood. Then the next thing you do is you use a lot of noise to scare them. So God sent the frogs that croaked and made lots of noise to scare the Egyptians. And then you weaken the defenses by shooting arrows at them. And so God, the arrows were representing the lice that kept biting them, um, that crawled all over them. And then... You bring invaders, or at least the initial shock troops, to enter the city to weaken, to probe its defenses. And so God sent in the wild animals to enter and attack the Egyptians. Then the next thing that you do is you attack their livestock. And here God brought a plague where where all the animals died in plague. The next thing that you do is, if you're attacking a city, you try to scale the walls and you um, build, um, you, they would build um, um, fortresses that were higher than the walls and use that to throw boiling oil on them or um, uh, to throw things at them. And that's represented in the boils um, or blisters that the Egyptians had. Then the next stage is you send in catapults, or today missiles, you uh, send into the city um, in order to further weaken its defenses. And here, um, God sent down hail. Then you finally send in the troops to um, capture the city. And God sent in the locusts, swarm to swarm the city. And then you capture them, represented in the darkness. They couldn't see anything. And then finally, you kill the leadership. 
And that is represented in the death of the firstborn. So the Midrash says that these ten plagues are really, God was using his own ways of doing what would be normal tactical invasion or attack of a town, of a city, of a country. And he was using the same tactics that any army would use. God was using those same tactics. That's why he chose these ten plagues. The Kabbalists, however, see much greater or meaning. Firstly, many commentaries offer many different explanations as to why God chose these ten plagues. But today I'm going to focus on some more mystical explanations. So the Kabbalists focus on some of the more mystical explanations for the ten plagues. Now what's interesting is that the number ten appears a number of times in Judaism. Firstly, we know the the Mishnah tells us that when God created the world, God spoke and the world came into being. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be dry land. There was dry land. Let there be animals. And there were animals. God spoke and things came into being. In the story of creation in Genesis, God spoke ten times. What we call Asara Ma'amarot. The ten statements. And so God created the world, the universe, with ten statements, with Asara Ma'amarot. Later, God will appear to our ancestors at Mount Sinai. And there he will say, ten commandments. Aseret Hadibrot. Ten Commandments. So clearly there is something unique about the number ten. Our sages explain in Kabbalah that there are ten sefirot. Sefirot are tools that God used in the creation of our world. So God used ten tools known as sefirot in order to create our universe. And that is why he used the ten mamarot, the ten statements in creation. The ten statements involve each one was using a different tool, a different one of God's ten tools that he used in creation, the ten spirits. In the same way, God gave us the Torah, which is the manual that his chosen people are meant to use in order to bring about the purpose of his creation, in other words, to fulfill the mission for which he created our world. Again, same ten tools invested in these ten commandments, and that's why there are ten commandments. Now, Kabbalah teaches that humans are created in the image of God. The Torah says that God created man in his image. Now, of course, God himself has no image. So, um, Sefi Yitzirah, the Book of Formation, tells us that we humans were created in the image of God in that we have ten powers corresponding or matching God's ten spherot. Our, our soul is made up of ten powers that correspond to God's ten spherot. What are that, those ten powers in our soul? So the ten powers can be split into two groups, or sometimes even four groups. The first three powers are what we call intellectual powers. Now, there are actually 
two different ways of listing those first three intellectual powers. Um, for our subject today, we will focus on one of those two ways, which starts with, ket- with Keter. Keter is the first one, which is the very a person's own identity, a person's sense of self, called the crown. The second would be Chachma, or creativity, the ability of a person to come up with ideas, to be creative, to come up with new concepts. And then the third one is Bina, understanding, the ability to understand or relate to things. So those are the three intellectual um, powers that every person has. And in the same way, we also have, then we have seven what we call emotional powers. These seven emotional powers really can be split into three different groups. The first three are really emotions. The next three are motivational. And the last one is sense of self, or sorry, relationship to others. So the first three are chesed, kindness, ability to give to others, to love others, to care for others, be kind to others. The second one is gevura, discipline, the ability to stop, to discipline oneself, to discipline others, to stop, not to give. The third one is called tiferet. Tiferet is the ability to find balance, to find balance not to be too far giving, not to to be too far with discipline, to find a perfect balance in life. It's one of the hardest ones, find balance in life. Then we have the motivational sefirot, three motivational sefirot. The first one is netzach, or victory, the power to be self-motivated or driven, to be driven towards something. The next one, hod, is the ability to be submissive. Submission. To give in to something greater than you. Something beyond you. Listen to somebody else. Do what somebody else asks of you. The next one is yesod. Yesod is connection. The ability to connect to others. To connect with others. And then the final one is malchot, literally royalty, but it's usually referred to as communication, the ability to communicate to others, rule other, other, over others, or impact others, the impact that we can make on other people. So every person has these ten parts in them. Kabbalah further teaches that every person has two souls. Every person has two souls. Two parts to that. We should one day do a class on the two souls. That would be a good class. So the, every person has two souls. A godly soul and an animal soul. And that explains, people often wonder, we often wonder, are people good or bad or neutral? And Kabbalah tells us none of the above. People are both good and bad. We have one side of us that is good, godly, and one side of us that is bad, that is an animal. Two sides to it. 
Now, even very good people that do a lot of good still have the animal inside of them that can wake up at any time and make them do bad. And any per- even people who do lots and lots of bad still have the godly soul inside of them that wakes up and makes them do good. People are not all of anything. They're a mix. And every person is battling. People spend their whole life battling within themselves. And there's no end to this battle throughout your life. Throughout your life, you're always battling good versus evil. So life is a battle inside of us. Every part of us is battle. Now the souls, we said, are made up of ten sephirots. So just as just as the um, just as the um, godly soul has ten sephirot, so to the animal soul has ten sephirot. Each one has ten sephirot. And each one uses its sephirot within itself for its own purposes. The godly soul to do what God wants to do good. The animal soul, which is selfish, to do what I want, what I feel like, to do bad. Kabbalah teaches us that the exodus from Egypt was not a one-time event. At the Seder, we say that in every generation, a person must see themselves as if they left Egypt. Now, of course, we didn't leave Egypt. Our ancestors did many, many thousands of years ago, over 3,000 years ago. But the Exodus is an ongoing battle in, in every person's life. The battle between good and evil that we all have within ourselves. And so the Exodus was really the opening moment of our Jewish history. And for our people, but really for all of history, for everyone, the battle, the opening moment of the battle between good and evil. And in a sense, it serves as a prototype of that battle between good and evil. And so we, using, uh, so we, looking at the Exodus, can look at the steps in the Exodus and see things, take lessons that can help our own personal battle between good and evil. Kabbalah tells us that the ten plagues that God wrought upon the Egyptians were really representative of the evil that the Egyptians themselves had within themselves. And it was each plague was another expression of the evil that they used and the evil that they had within themselves. And for us to overcome evil, we have to recognize the evil within ourselves, the negativity within ourselves, and work to overcome it. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we don't have chametz on Passover, chametz representing evil, and we have to cleanse the evil from ourselves over Passover. It's part of that same process. Nice suffering, right? Is there like mental, mental bit like suffering? Suffering? Well, we all struggle, struggle. So, as we look within ourselves, we see that we have ten parts within ourselves. Now, before I get to explaining the ten parts, just another word on the godly soul and the animal soul. Our godly soul is good because it is God-centered. 
It has only one purpose. It recognizes that God placed us here on earth in order to fulfill a mission. And its goal, and the mission itself could be complex with a lot of detail to it, the goal of the godly soul is to fulfill that mission. And that's it. It wants to do what God wants. That's what makes it good. The animal soul is evil. Why is it evil? Because it's selfish. And Kabbalah explains that selfishness is the sense of all evil. God is good. Selfishness means I only care about myself, not about God. So selfishness is the source of all evil. All evil comes from selfishness. And even, even the positive, there's some positive to selfishness. Sometimes taking care of yourself is important. Even the positive sides of selfishness also comes from the animal soul. That's why we can turn our animal soul into a godly soul, make it more godly. But these, we will see that all the negative things come from the animal soul, which all ultimately come from self-centeredness, being centered upon oneself. And really the battle against evil is not only a battle against doing harm, to oneself or to others. It's not only a battle against not transgressing God's commandments. It's really a battle against self-centeredness. To stop being self-centered and become more God-centered. So we have ten parts within ourselves. Good and evil. And each plague is an expression of one of those evil parts that we have to change. Yes, Sandy? Yes, it's it's necessary. You're absolutely right. Yes, we need to be self-centered in order to survive, but we've got to limit that self-centeredness. God gave us an animal soul because we need it, but it's also the source of all evil. Yes. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We need to learn to be less self-centered. And remember that that self-centeredness is the source of all evil. Yes? And God created us in his own image. His own image. Mm-hmm. And either God has both the good and evil side or our evil side came from somewhere else. No, God created us in his image in the sense that we have ten sefirot in our godly soul. Our animal soul mirrors the godly soul. In other words, the evil mirrors the good. But they, there's no evil in God. God created evil, but there's no evil in God. God created it. Now, how and why God created evil is a subject of another class. We actually did a class previously about Satan in Judaism where we really addressed that in detail. So the first of the plagues, sorry? No, God created evil. Yes. That's for another class. So Kabbalists 
tell us, as we said, that each of the plagues serves as a prototype, an example of the battles of evil within ourselves. There are ten parts to ourselves, and so therefore there's ten plagues. The first of the plagues is the plague of blood. Blood represents the lowest of the sefirot, malchut. Particularly, or malchut, or the ability to influence others, to make an impact of others. Particularly, malchut refers to a person's own sense of self. Well, once a person's sense of um, self, um, of power, a person's power. Now, what turned into blood? The Nile River. The Nile River was worshipped by the Egyptians. Why was it worshipped by the Egyptians? Because that was their source of everything. Egypt is in the middle of a desert. There is no rain in Egypt. It has one of the lowest rainfalls in the world. And yet, Egypt is very fertile. It's one of the most fertile places in the world. And that is because it has a very large river, the Nile River, flowing through it. And the Egyptians all along the Nile River built canals. And the canals went through the farmland, um, stretching out a couple miles on each side of the Nile River, all along the Nile River. And uh, Egypt, by the way, while it looks on the map like a square, if you actually, today you could do it with um, Google Maps, the satellite, if you actually look at Egypt, it's not a square at all. It's a very, very thin strip along the Nile River. Nobody lives outside that thin strip. Almost no one lives outside that thin strip. A little bit on the coasts, but that's it. So, because otherwise it's just desert. So, um, the Nile River would rise and would flood their farmlands, and that's how, and the canals would flood the farmlands, and that's how they watered the lands, and that's why it was so fertile. That's why they had such great crops in Egypt. But, so they worshipped the Nile, because the Nile was their source of everything. They, um, and the Nile was a great, they would celebrate every time when the Nile rise. It was a big kind of celebration for the Egyptians. And so God destroyed their God, destroyed their source of everything, destroyed the Nile by turning it into blood. So a person can have their sense of power, ability to influence others, power over others, and you can use it in two ways. You could use it for evil, Manipulating others, trying to harm others. Or you can use it, you can use it as blood. The Egyptians turned the Nile into blood themselves by ordering that all Hebrew boys, Jewish boys that were born should be thrown into the Nile River. The Nile River that had been filled with the dead Jewish babies was now destroyed by God. So you can destroy and represent with blood, representing all the blood that the Egyptians had spilled in the Nile River. They had used their God, which the source of life, the source of sustenance, the source of food, they could have used it for good. Instead, they used it for evil. So a person has power. A person has the ability to influence and impact others. You could use it for good. You could use it for positivity. And you could use it for negativity. You could use it in a negative way. Two ways to use it. The next plague is the plague of frogs. Frogs. 
Frogs are generally water animals. They're cold and slimy. And in Kabbalah, frogs represent coldness. Or discipline. Now, discipline is very important. It's a very good thing. Be self-disciplined. To discipline others, you've got to keep, them under, keep people from stepping out of line. Very important part of society, uh, within our own family, within our social networks. You've got to discipline. If someone's doing something wrong, you've got to be strong about it, be firm about it. This discipline is very, very important. But discipline can also be used in a negative way. Force others, push others, harm others. It's also about how we connect to others. A person could connect to other people with coldness. You could connect to other people with warmth, or you could connect to other people with coldness. Our sages point out that some things are helpful, right? A lot of things in life that, you know, you use for various, are useful. Some things are harmful. And then there's some things that are just nothing. They don't help, they don't harm. Cold. Useless. And so the frogs represent the things that are someone who, you, re- you impact others with this coldness. I don't care about you. Doesn't bother me. No interest in others, having this negative coldness. And so we can, we can, we use discipline, we could use it again for negative, we could use it for positive as well. You could use it in both directions. The, um, sorry, the, I didn't touch on the sphera. The sphera is the sphera of yesod. Yesod is how we relate to other people. So you could sorry, relate to other people with this coldness. You could relate to other people with um, you could relate to other people with coldness, um, ignoring them, not having anything to do with them, or with apathy. Dis, um, not that you're I don't dislike you, I just don't care. I don't care about you, ignoring them. Or you can relate to other people with warmth, with care, care for others. The next sphera is hod. Hod is the power of submission. Submission is the ability to submit to others. Listen to what other people have to say. Follow other people. Say, okay, that's fine, I'll do what you say. Listen when you're told what to do. Now sometimes submission could be very bad. You submit yourself to somebody who doesn't have your best interests. Or some people just lose interest totally. Not submit to anyone else, but submit to nothing. Like the dust, the lice. The lice, we're told, came from dust of e- the dust, the ground of Egypt. A person makes himself like dust. They kind of lose any interest in life. Lose any drive. Don't want any, aren't interested in anything. And so they submit to nothing. Or a person can submit to earth, to earthly things, to material things. A person submits, becomes controlled by their passion for money, for materialistic things. Becomes their life. They need a bigger and better car. 
Sorry? They wish a bit, yes. So, so the person can submit in a negative way or you could submit in a positive way. Submit to somebody who cares about you in order to build a relationship. Submit to, your, to someone you, who loves you. Submit to somebody who's a teacher, who's going to teach you something. If you're not ready to learn, you're never going to learn. If you're not ready to open up your mind, and hear what they have to say, you'll never learn. Different kind of submission. Submit to God, of course. So we could use submission in a negative way, we can use it in a positive way. The lights coming from earth was the negativity, either the, um, uh, either earth, um, in the, uh, either earth as being meaningless or useless, uh, falling into depression or laziness, um, or submitting to materialistic things. But you could use it in a positive way. Submitting to goodness. The next one is, the next plague is wild beasts, which is represented in the Sephira of Netzach. Netzach is motivation or drive, ambition. Ambition can be very positive. It can also be very negative. People destroy themselves with ambition. You have an ambition to do something that is bad for yourself, that is self-centered, that is about yourself. Some people are just driven by their ambition. They knock off, they, who said, uh, move fast and break things, right? Some people just move quickly and break things. They're driven by their ambition. Nothing gets in their way. And so they roll over everyone and everything in their way, causing great harm. Negative ambition. Like the wild beasts that attacked Egypt. Or you can have a positive ambition. Ambition in a positive way. Where you're driven to do good. Driven to make a positive impact. Driven to do something good. The next sephira is Tiferet. Tiferet is the ability to balance, find balance in life. And this is represented in the next um, plague, the plague of Dever, of uh, where the animals die. The uh, plague hit the animals and all of the animals died. A person needs to find balance in life. But there's two types of balance. There's a well-meaning balance where a person's trying to find the perfect balance. Trying not, you can't go too far one way, can't go too far the, uh, the other way. Anything to the extreme is no good. You need to find balance in every part of life. But then people find what we could call the cunning balance or the sly balance. Where somebody pretends to be, you pretend to be someone's friend to get something out of them. You don't really care for them, but you pretend to be their friend. People find sometimes the cunning sly balance using balance in order to achieve negative goals. They try to create relationships or achieve negative goals using the same balance. It's also no good. And that's represented in the plague where the um, animals, animals were, were hit, things that we should care about, you appear like you care about it. Our sages say that balance, 
Um, the Kabbalists say often goes with care, right? You find balance because you care. You care to find the perfect balance between them. You care about something and you pretend to care about it, but you don't really care about the animals. You want to make the money of them. You pretend to care about them, but you don't really. So it's the balance that you're pretending to find, the perfect balance. You're pretending to care, but you don't really care. The next one is, the next plague is boils, represented in gevura, discipline. A person can discipline in a cruel way, in a way in which they use discipline to harm others. Discipline could be very healthy in a way that you can, um, you can self-discipline or discipline others who are doing harm. That was represented in the boils. The boils um, burned them, we're told, like fire, um, which is kind of a destructive thing. The ability to stop others, to discipline others, uh, represented in the fire. So you could have a cruel discipline, you could have positive discipline. The next one is chesed, kindness. And that was represented in the plague of hail. Generally, water represents kindness and fire represents discipline in Kabbalah. Hail comes from water, right? Except it's frozen. Right? It comes from water, except it's frozen. You can be kind, you can love someone, but it's, you have an ulterior motive. You don't really love them. It's because you're going to get something out of them. That's a frozen love. That's the hail. We have to use our love and kindness in a positive way. Then the next plague, the eighth plague, is locust, um, which is, represents the eighth of the spherot, going from the bottom, bina, understanding. Our, our minds are the most powerful parts of a person. We use our minds for everything. Today, we don't work much with our hands anymore, except our keyboard to type. Most of what we do is with our minds. Most of our work is in our minds. Everything that we do is all about the mind. Mind is very, very powerful. But you could use it in two ways. You could use it for good, and you could use it for bad. You could use your mind to understand things, to improve things, make things better for ourselves, for others. And you could use your minds to figure out ways to cause harm to others. You could figure, use your mind to figure out ways to hurt other people. Unfortunately, there are people who spend their days trying to come up with ways to harm other people. But we all do it in a small sense, right? When we want to cause harm, we all have an animal soul inside of us, and... You try to you come up with a smart way of doing it. You use your minds for positive and for negative. The mind consumes everything, controls everything. Just like the locust swarm that swarmed and can, takes over everything. So in the same way, we use our minds. We could use it for positive. We could use it for negative. The next of the sefirot, the ninth, is chachma. Chachma is the ability to be, ability to be creative. Ability to think outside the box. To come up with new ideas. Creativity could be in two ways. It could be a way of light, and it could be in a way of darkness. Works in two ways. 
Light is when you see that which is beyond you. You're prepared to consider other options. You're, compared, you're prepared to listen, to hear what others have to say. You're open to ideas, open to change. Darkness is where you're not open to new ideas. You have your way set and you won't change. You ever tried to argue with somebody who has their mind set about something, no matter how ridiculous it is? They won't change. They're not open to listening. They're not open to another idea. Darkness. And finally, the death of the firstborn. The firstborns were the leaders of Egypt, the leaders in each family. And that represents Keter, the death of our own identity. We have an identity, but the question is, what is that identity? Who am I? What am I? What is my purpose? For too many people, their purpose is, the reason why they're alive, is to see 50 places before they die. Or to run in the Boston Marathon. Or maybe it's even to harm, to cause harm, though those things seem not bad, but useless. And then maybe even to harm others. Got to think about what our identity is. What am I here for? What is my goal? What's my purpose in life? Why am I here? Am I here just to wake up and read the paper, go to work and go to sleep? Is that what we're here for? To eat and sleep? Is that why God placed us here? What's my identity? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And so we can again use that in a negative way, create negative or useless purposes in our life. People set for themselves all sorts of meaningless goals like the person who I've heard this from a number of people actually um, whose legs gave out after enough running and uh, told me they have no need to live anymore because they can't run marathons why else would they be alive so is that why we're alive to run in the marathon or are we alive for another purpose do we have a greater purpose so those are ten sifirot that we have within ourselves in each of these spherot, we have a positive and a negative. The plagues represent the ten negative things. And really, Passover is the exodus to change ourselves, to try to grow ourselves, to try to change who we are. In the Haggadah, any questions? Yes. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Yes, we just have to look for it. In the Haggadah, we, we are told, after we list the plagues, we are told, that there were two sages, Rabbi Yossi Haglili. I'm sorry, Rabbi Eliezer, my mistake. Rabbi Eliezer would say that there weren't 10 plagues in Egypt, there were 40 plagues in Egypt. Because each plague had four parts to it. And then there is another sage, Rabbi Akiva, who says that there weren't 10 plagues in Egypt, there were 50 plagues in Egypt. Because each plague had five parts to it. Now, without getting into the list of what the 40 or 50 plagues were, and commentaries do go through lists of 40, 50 plagues, but Kabbalah explains that four parts to each plague, because everything within it is made up of four parts. 
Everything is made up of four parts. There's four parts to everything in creation. God created everything with four parts in it. And I'm not going to get into the parts right now. Everything has four parts in it. So when you dig deeper, every one of our spherot, every one of the spherot within ourselves, have four subparts to them. And so it's not only the ten parts, ten spherot that we have to work with, it's each of the parts within them that we have to work with. That's the view of Rabbi Eliezer. But then there's another view, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva says that each plague is made up of five parts. Why five parts? If there is four parts in each thing. So that is because there's another part below, beyond everything, called the koach hiyuli, or the essence of each thing. It's made up of four parts, but then there is the essence of what it is, deep inside. And so, Rabbi Akiva says that in everything that we do, in everything that we do, it's not enough just to work on the process, work on changing our minds, and work on changing our perspectives, and work on changing our kindness and love, and work on changing discipline, and work on changing our balance, and work on changing our ambition. It's not only work on changing each thing in the details. We've got to dig down to the essence, change our very person, and change who we are. Change ourselves entirely. It's not just changing the details, which we have to do as well, but we need to become a different person. The Rebbe points out something very interesting. You know why Rabbi Akiva was the one who said this? Rabbi Akiva's father's parents were converts. They weren't born Jewish. They converted to Judaism. And so they changed who they were. They didn't just change their practice. They changed their very identity. And we must do the same. As part of the exodus from Egypt, our goal is not only to change our process, our actions, very important part. We should focus on all the things that we do that we need change and improve ourselves, focus on what we need, look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what, how can I improve myself? But it's really about changing our identity, leaving Egypt and be, the Egypt of ourselves and becoming a totally different person, becoming a spiritually oriented person, a person who is God-centered and no longer self-centered. So it's not only about changing the details, but it's about totally changing who we are, becoming a God-centered person as opposed to a self-centered person. So along with all the rules of Passover, we have lots of rules and traditions, beautiful traditions. Along with all of that, we also have the importance of self-introspection and change and self-development that comes along with our Passover, along with our Seder, and that's a deeper Kabbalistic meaning to Passover. So I thank you.